Today we're going to talk about reflecting honestly on history. The teachers got together, we talked about topics, we were dividing them up, and I lost. So, I'm going to be talking about reflecting honestly on history. So, let's start with a definition. What's history? Well, if you go to the dictionary, you get this. It's the branch of knowledge that deals systematically with the past. A recording, analyzing, correlating, and explaining of past events. And I think that probably comports pretty well with what most people think history is. I like this one. It's the sum total of the things that could have been avoided. I found some more pessimistic ones, but I decided to kind of cut it. So why should we study history? Now, I believe that full confession is good for the soul. I'm going to be as transparent as I can. When I was in high school, in junior high school, I hated history. And I think it was because of the way it was taught. Names, dates that had to be met. I never memorized all the, all the presidents. Okay? I refused. Got a C on that paper. I won't do it. Not worth my time. I don't care. I hated history. And I went to college, and I went to a liberal arts college, which means that if you're not a liberal arts major and you're a science major, you have to take all the hard science classes, plus you have to take English, history, all those other things with majors in that stuff. Now, the science department had classes for non-majors but not the English department, the history department, or anything like that. You had to take it with majors. So I had to take these classes with people who actually cared about this stuff, which really bothered me. I mean, in retrospect, it was the right thing to do, and I feel like I'm a better person for it, more well-rounded, and all, all of that. But at the time, I was not a happy camper. So I had to take a history class in college. And uh, I put it off to graduate, and I put it off as long as humanly possible. I waited until the last semester of my senior year to take the required history class. The only thing that fit my schedule was a class called Modern European History. And I'm thinking, how bad can this be? Right? I'll just go, I'll read, I'll write, I'll be out of there. I'm a senior, I can handle this. I walk into the class. The class was held in Dimnit Chapel in Hope College. Dimnit Chapel was built to look like a medieval castle. It was a huge cathedral, and the class was in the basement. It was like I'm in the catacombs. So it's damp, it's cold, the room's made of stone, so the sound just echoes off. And I thought, great. And then in walks the professor. He looked like Quasimodo's understudy, okay? Hunched back, he walks in, dragging one foot, Bald, except for some hair on the sides that frizzed everywhere. And I looked to heaven and I said, God, just kill me now. Just take me now. I am never going to graduate. I knew it was over. But I was wrong. Because that professor taught history the way it was supposed to be taught. I didn't have to memorize a single date. He didn't even care about the date. What he cared about was what were the social and economic 
factors that cause events to occur. And how is that reflected through the music, the architecture, the art, and the literature of that period? Oh, the scales were, I felt like Paul, right? I mean, the scales came off my eyes, and I could now see, it's like, history's not boring. It's really cool. So why do we stay? And, and now one of my favorite things to do, I have a passion for the revolutionary period. Ask my boys. I have shelves full of books from the revolutionary period in pre-revolutionary and just post-revolutionary period in U.S. history. I love that part of history. If anybody's interested, sometime we can talk about that. But not today. So why, why should we study history? Well, part of it's socialization. All right? If you don't understand what the history is, of a people, of us, of the United States. How can you be a good citizen? How can you understand who we are and why we are here if you don't understand our history? Where did we come from? Where we came from is a very important element in who we are, where we are today. And it's how we judge, for example, well, what's right and wrong? You know, there's a, a new... Uh, uh, member of the Supreme Court is being uh, sought out and vetted right now. And one of the things that we look to is our Constitution. And the Constitution was written in, intentionally vaguely. It didn't try, just like the Bible, it didn't try to cover every single thing, and it's supposed to be our guide going into the future. And that's why it's so critical who our next Supreme Court justice is because they will decide what does it mean to be American they will decide they will decide how are we going to live our life how are we going to interact with our government it's, it's, it's a very important thing but studying history helps us to understand uh, gives us some moral and practical guidance it helps us gain insights into decision-making what should we do what were the what were the uh, the views of the founding fathers and it avoids it helps us to avoid being misled. One of my favorite uh, little uh, factual situations I, I find this very interesting is, okay, I don't know what people's politics are in here, and, and I don't care. I think we would disagree. But um, if you were in the liberal wing of American politics, can you tell me which president, which early president those people align with? I guess I gave it away that I don't consider myself part of those people. So who, the, the, the people on the liberal wing, you know, which president do they point to as their guiding light, you know? Who? Even before that. Way back. Thomas Jefferson. Okay. We only have a half hour. Sorry, I couldn't wait to you guys. Yes. <laughs> they all point to Thomas Jefferson. But the interesting thing is, is that although Thomas Jefferson did have a vision for some social programs and such, Thomas Jefferson's primary goal was that there would never be a government. He didn't think it was necessary. This whole concept of large government would be completely foreign to him. He would be sick. In fact, he would probably start a revolution and say, this government's too big. He believed that government should get smaller and smaller and smaller. And at some point, he believed, he was one of the Enlightenment thinkers, and he believed that with time, people could just govern themselves and there would be no need for a uh, national government at all. So let's talk about history in the church. 
Now, this is a very important point, and I think it was very important that Brother Barkas taught what he taught on Wednesday, uh, or spoke about on Wednesday, or the, you know, the, the old landmarks in, in, in keeping, keeping these things precious to you, because Christianity is a historical religion. It is based on historical events. These things really occurred. The biblical characters were real characters. They were real people. These things actually happened. This was not the subject of myth or legend. It really occurred. And the key points in our biblical history, our, our religious history, the fall, the flood, exodus, the conquest, exile, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, occurred in real history. So the Christian church, the Christian religion, is a historical religion. Now, I, I thought it was important, and I have several passages that we're going to go through quickly. And as usually, what usually happens to me is when I start pulling out the snippets, then I start reading the whole chapter, and then I think, ooh, that's really good, that's really good. And then I realize, uh-oh, I only have so many minutes, there is no way we can read this, people will be falling out of their chairs. So I've had to, I've had to condense this down, but what I want to do is to point out places where you really need to go back and read the whole chapter. Because there's some incredible stuff on the treatment of history. You know, it's remarkable. One of the interesting things in preparing for many of these lessons is that, yes, you know, I, I, you always have a, a strong feel for what the Bible is and it, its central importance in our lives and, and in our faith. But it, it's remarkable how you gloss over. There are so many points in the Bible, and the Bible speaks to so many factors in our day-to-day -day life. I didn't appreciate how many times the Bible talked about the appropriate view of history, but it does. It would be impossible in the time given to us for me to go through every time there's a historical recountment in the, in the Bible, recounting of, of what occurred uh, to help remind people of where they got to where they were. But So I've, I've picked out a few and I've truncated them, and, and I don't want to move forward. So, do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee thy elders, and they will tell thee. Okay? So here was an admonition way back in Deuteronomy, where they were pointing back, and they were saying, Ask your fathers, ask the elders, Look back to the way things were done before so that you will understand, so that, you're don't, so that you're not foolish and you're not unwise. Okay? It's a very important point. You know, I, uh, I was very fortunate to have my grandmother in my life for a lot of years, and Brad and Evan knew, knew my, my grandmother for quite a while before she passed away. Well, my grandmother was born in 1909. 1909. And... Uh, she, her grandparents fought in the Civil War. So, I mean, here's my grandmother who knew somebody that was Civil War. That was in the, the 1860s. She's 1909. She knew these people. So she could reach all the way to the Civil War. She was a child during World War I. Went through the Depression. World War II. Okay? My grandmother. I talked to her. Okay? She made me cookies. Look at me. All right? Uh, okay? <laughs> That's where I learned to eat desserts, I'm telling you. But uh, she rode a horse to school. My grandmother. 
on the farm in Nebraska, she rode a horse to school. She learned to cook on a wood stove. She killed her own chickens. My grandmother. Before she died, my grandmother cooked in a microwave oven. In her life, she saw wood stoves and microwave ovens. She rode a horse to school, saw a man go to the moon. So space shuttles go up and come back down. That's quite a life. That's pretty cool. And I miss, I, I mean, Grandma's been dead for I don't know, 15 years, something like that. But I still miss my grandmother because I miss that link to history. I could talk to her about stuff. And what she couldn't remember, she'd make up. It was great. And she was so convincing. But the Bible tells us to go to the elders so that we don't forget. And in Joshua, this, uh, this, this happened right after the children of Israel passed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every top tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take ye every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Now you need to think about what this is actually saying. You know, everybody remembers the Red Sea parting, but God parted the water at the Jordan before the Ark of the Covenant, and they walked through on dry land. This was a new generation, right? And remember the problems the children of Israel had, that they were crying and whining and didn't want to trust God? Well, now it's a whole new generation, except Joshua and Caleb, right? And God split the waters for them one more time, and they walked across, and they all, they grabbed one person from each tribe grabbed a rock, and they built a monument. And the purpose was, don't forget. So, is history important in the Bible? Absolutely. Don't forget what went on. Don't forget what God did for you. Now, it's going to be very difficult for me to stay, to stay focused on the topic here, history, because we are in a time in our movement, a time in the apostolic church, where people are rejecting the old stones. People have forgotten what God has done. People are very quick to just throw it away and reach for the new thing. Okay? The Bible predicted that we would be at this place. And it warned against this time. But we can't heed the warning if we don't look back to the history and know where we came from and understand who we are. Oops, wrong way. You need to read all of Psalm 78. If you get a chance, read Psalm 78. I only wanted to read a couple of verses, but I had to read more. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, 
showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and the strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel when he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that not that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. This is a frightening passage because we see this kind of thing occurring right now. People who are willing to not have their heart aright and whose spirit is not steadfast with God. If you stray from the path that God has set out, you have a problem. If you can't measure yourself up with the measuring stick of the Bible and God's word, then you're not right. You are incorrect. And if you stray from the, from the, from the paths that have been established for us, you're, you are wrong. This, we have studied this. This is in Acts chapter 7. It is the speech of Stephen right before they took him out. Okay? And he recounted the history of the Jewish people, and he ended with this. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and hath not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. This was a warning from Stephen to the children of Israel, or to the Jews of his time. I submit to you that it's a warning to us today as well, if we're willing to use the right focus and think of it in the right way. And then finally, Paul gives this in 1 Corinthians. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. This is another chapter. You ought to read the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. This was Paul talking to us today. Be careful. Be careful. Don't fall into the human nature 
that happened before. You know, the Holy Ghost is an amazing thing. You get the Holy Ghost, and some people go, full stop, I've arrived. Well, you know, that's just not correct. That's just not correct. Because when you receive the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost is nothing but a, and I don't want to diminish it, the Holy Ghost is this incredible force. It can do incredible things. But it doesn't change who you are. If you have a bad temper, when you get the Holy Ghost, you will still have a bad temper. What you now have is a tool that if you allow it to work in your life, you will change. And so sometimes we get a little confused, and it can become a little frustrating when you say, well, I know these people, they had the Holy Ghost. I was there when they spoke in tongues. How is it that they can now go and do thus and so and thus and so? Or maybe, maybe they're right. But that's the wrong analysis. That's the wrong framework. The correct analysis is, have I weighed the Spirit? Have I determined that they have let the Holy Ghost work in their life? Or were they simply trying to do what they wanted to do? That the changes that they thought should happen weren't happening fast enough. And so I'll make that happen right now. You know, some people are convinced that if I change the way that we do things, if we de-emphasize certain aspects of our faith and who we are, more people will come. We'll fill our church. And I could be the pastor of a huge church instead of the pastor of a small church. I submit to you, I know a number of people who have taken that route. You know how many of them pastor a large church? Zero. In fact, many of them lose anything that they ever had. Many of them have lost their family. Many of them have succumbed to terrible things. I have never seen this work. We can be intoxicated with power. We can be intoxicated with the thought of influence. These are the things that the Bible is warning us about. This is the history that we need to think about when we're we're letting the Holy Ghost work in our lives. Okay. So, in in the Bible, this biblical approach to history helped reinforce who God really was And I would argue, more importantly, his faithfulness to us. Well, now we need to talk about some of the different historical lenses that the past is viewed through. Now, does anyone here have really good vision and don't need glasses at all? You're lucky people. Because I have trifocals. Well, they're a little bit dirty. Try these on. Does that change your view of the world? Look through the bottom. What's that like? 
<laughs> okay. Now, that's a silly illustration. But the lens that you look at facts through or the frame of reference that you're using for analysis can change the way you see things. Now, when I took those glasses off, nothing is in focus. In fact, all of you look beautiful. <laughs> no. I have to have my hand here for it to be in focus. I can't see. And if it's small print, it has to be there. Because I'm getting old. So I wear trifocals. I can't see it. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm looking at the same facts. I could be looking at the same things, but I couldn't see it. So the view that you take is important. And so historically, people have taken, or the you know, philosophers have taken the view that you can view history linearly, that there was a beginning, and that there were the, these events have occurred in a particular order, and they give us a guide as to the present and help us look into the future. Other people take the view that history is cyclical, that there are these endless, almost meaningless cycles that occur. They occur outside of any kind of control, and you can't learn anything from any one of them. Uh, they're not worthy of any serious reflection. So Hebrew historians were the first ones to have any real philosophy of history in the ancient world. Their development of a linear rather than cyclical concept of time and their consciousness of the unity of the human race under one God opened the way for such a philosophy. They also, unlike other ancient people, looked to a future golden age under their Messiah rather than to a past golden age. God, as well as man, is shaping history in their view. History is a process that will come to a meaningful climax under the guidance of God. This approach gave a new perspective and wholeness to human history. And it's just interesting that the Hebrews, this band of people, this special people, God's people, they had a perspective on history different than all the world around them. It was really kind of remarkable. When you really study the, the history of, of the Hebrews, they were a very, very unique people. So here you have one historical lens that the Hebrew historians had that was based on their faith in God. Now, when you talk about the history of history and how people think about it, uh, from creation to 1500 A.D., thereabouts, is what's referred to as pre-modern history. And it pretty much followed the, I mean, when people were really talking about history, and, and you have to be careful when you talk about, when they talk about the Greeks and the ancient Greeks, of course, that conjures up visions of, of um, uh, Greek mythology and their gods and all this kind of stuff. But the people who, the Greeks who really were serious about writing history, the ancient Greeks wrote it very much like the ancient Hebrews did, where they, they wanted the facts and they applied rational thought to their investigation of history. They believed that it was linear. Uh, it was portrayed as true and morally useful. As you get into Western medieval historians, they accepted that the authority of Scripture and the teaching that history created with God's creation of time um, it was true, and they emphasized God's interventions as revealed in Scripture. Uh, they asserted that history will culminate in the future when God returns at the end of time and space. 
which is pretty consistent with that Hebrew view and is the view that, that we would, I would endorse today. During the modern period, 1600 to about 1800, now this gets fuzzy because the next after modern comes, can you guess it, postmodern, and there's not really a clear date when they slipped, slipped from modern to postmodern. Uh, but this was where historians tried to harness scientific methods to their techniques. And they perceived progress in the unfolding of history through man's use of science and reason rather than a result of God's intervention. So you have to think about this now, and I'd like for you to think about it in the context of what, what's going on in the thought in the church. Okay, So now... We've gone from this is God's intervention, and now this idea is beginning to emerge that it's like, well, you know, man was getting a lot smarter and had a lot more tools, and we were able to reason better. We, we were smarter than we used to be, and so we're just doing better. And so maybe it's us. Maybe it's not God at all. Or maybe my influence on history, or man's influence on history, is becoming more and more uh, powerful. Now, this resulted in intellectuals like Voltaire declaring complete independence from Scripture. And they were applying philosophically the findings of science, and they created this new world based on naturalism. And naturalism intentionally excludes spiritual realities. Well, this was happening back in the 16, 17, 1800s, where this thought was starting to emerge. Do we see that today? Absolutely. That thought has permeated today and even is part of the dogma of many Protestant churches where Scripture, the importance of Scripture itself is diminished. These are the things that the Bible was telling us to be careful of. They took the view that human progress was possible because people were basically good, not fundamentally evil, as Christianity taught. Where have we heard this? This is all the things that's happening in society today. If you talk to people who are unchurched, this concept that we have a carnal, sinful nature due to our Adamic nature, due to the fall, that, that we just have this nature, is contrary to the starting point that a lot of people have. And so when, they, when you start talking about being able to repent, I mean, why, why is, why, you know, when you repent, right, you're saying, okay, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to turn away from my evil nature. Well, if you don't believe you have one, now you have some difficulty with this whole concept of repentance. And you notice how these philosophical changes through history just start chipping away and peeling away at the fundamentals, at the very heart of God's truth in the Bible. Piece by piece, evolution over time, these new thoughts, this new thinking has crept in. Now, go back to the warnings that we saw in those biblical verses. Don't be foolish and unwise. Look back. Look back. What were the memorials? What were the things that you're supposed to hang on to? What did God do for you? Who are you as a people? That's why the study of history is important. And the philosophy of deism emerged that retained God as creator only as an impersonal historical force. And there are new books that are written. I, just, I read one recently 
that specifically talks about deism being the actual religion of the founding fathers, saying that they were just deists. They weren't really Christian. America is not now, nor has it ever been, a Christian nation because these people were deists. They believed in the God of the nation. They believed in the God of, you know, there's some supreme, powerful, creating force. Whatever it is, whoever it is, wherever it is, we just believe in that. And I think that with some of the founding fathers, that may be true. But with the majority of the founding fathers, that was absolutely false. Particularly if you were to read the writings of John Adams, Samuel Adams, I could go on for for, uh, quite a while. I mean, Samuel Adams, believe it or not, did very little as a brewer, beer brewer. People have that confused. Uh, Sam Adams was a politician, um, and he used to make people mad in Massachusetts because he kept calling for prayer meetings. He'd want to shut down government for a day of prayer. Hi, Brad. Uh, Well, five minutes. Okay, sorry. Um, I thought you'd seen me already. I noticed you. Uh, So I just, just, you know, I just, you know, you, you have to watch this stuff because see how these historical lenses change. If I, if, I want, if I want to come to the conclusion that America, if, if I'm bothered to say that America was a Christian nation ever, right? Well, maybe I can look at history through a different lens and see, ah, ah, I can create a reality where, oh, no, 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 they really weren't. They really weren't. See, here's this new reality. Different lens. Look at the same facts. Different lens. Then there's the... the positivism, and I don't have time to go through this really. Um, But Comte developed a positivist or positive religion and viewed a great being, humanity, the great medium was the world space, the great fetish was the earth, and created a religion around that. Um, but here, I think, is where I want to get to. A new Christianity was developed through positivism. The first religion is a reverence for nature. All is God. The second religion is the worship of the moral law as authority. The third religion is the infinite power revealed in nature, which is the source and the end of the moral ideal. Morality is the nature of things. Okay. When people start getting stupid about saying that we have this biblical duty to the uh, environment, that it's the environment that's important. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't believe in polluting. I think we need to take care of the world. We need to be good stewards of what God made for us. But when people start trying to equate your religion with the environment and saving the whales, positivism, this all goes back to Comte. Okay, we are letting, and I'm going to put up the red flag again, go back to the old, look at the history. Where did we come from? What do those stones mean? What does this mean, Dad? What does this mean, Mom? What's this mean, Grandma? What's it mean, Grandpa? Go to the elders in the church. Where have we come from? Right? Who are we? That's not, we're not tree huggers. That's not who we are. We respect the nature, but we don't make a religion out of it. Now, to this whole soup. In time comes Charles Darwin. And he came up with his theory that 
Natural selection took millions of years. He provided a solution to the problem of origins and led to the, it helped lead to the philosophical conclusion that God was no longer necessary. Historians could now ban God from the cosmos. That's why Darwin made such a splash. If, he did, if we wouldn't have had all of this philosophical soup going on at that point in history, Darwin's experiment would have been like, big deal. But because of where it ended up in time, it made a big difference. Postmodernism embraces an extreme form of relativism. That is, it holds that standards for judgment vary according to people, times, and situations. There are no absolutes. There is no absolute right and wrong. If historians could not invoke God's laws, who could say what was right or wrong? The postmodernist would answer, no one. You don't have a right to say that anything was right or wrong. You don't have a right to say that Hitler was right or wrong because it's all relative. In postmodernist view, history differs little, if at all, from poetry and other forms of literature. They're not telling true stories about the past. It just depends on your worldview. And what has happened is to redress grievances of, of oppressed groups or presumed grievances, Postmodernist scholars have been writing esteem-building histories that help confirm identity politics. And so history will be rewritten from an ethnic view. History will be rewritten from a sexual orientation view. History will be rewritten from any view that you want. And this whole issue of political correctness and absolute tolerance for all social groups regardless of what they believe uh, has come from postmodern thought. That anyone's right about anything that they want to be, all truth is subjective, and they've opened the door for people to write anything that promotes any cause. So look how thought has evolved from the linear view to now the postmodern view today. But more importantly, I want you to think about how has some of this thought crept into the church? What are we seeing happening? I submit to you that these philosophies are starting to taint the way we view the world and we view our own faith and our own religion. In Isaiah 14.24, it says, The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Now that's a statement of history. Okay? God is history's unifying and directing force. God's gracious redemptive plan in history gives it purpose and ultimate meaning. Meaning, I submit that you need to go and read Paul's sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17. He recounts for history and works through. You need to read it. But here is my closing. Luke 1, 1 through 4 is history done right. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth and order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things 
wherein thou hast been instructed. And with that, I bid you a fine afternoon.